Let's turn again to the Gospel of Mark this morning, chapter 4. Mark 4, I'll read from uh, verses 26 to 34 this morning. Uh, Before we read, just a couple of notes. Last week we considered the parable of the sower, of the the soils, the seed, and we're looking at two more parables about seed this morning. Um, Two more seed parables. And Jesus is using these parables to help his disciples understand what the kingdom of God is, what the kingdom of God is like. And as we talk about the kingdom again, I just want to briefly remind us what, what this concept is in the Gospels. What is the kingdom of God? Um, it's, it's not a place or a kingdom like, like we think about in, in earthly terms, but it is uh, the kingdom, that, or it's also not the kingdom in, in the sense that God is sovereign and powerful overall, as he always has been, that, that, that is true. But um, the kingdom came with, with Jesus particularly, and it's that, that concept is used in the Gospels to mean God's, God's saving power and rule uh, over the world. Not just his his power and, and rule as as God, but particularly his his gracious power and rule as it's exerted in the world. It's it's invisible in a sense, but it's seen in in us. It's seen in God's people as, and as it transforms people and their lives. Um, it's visible in the church in a sense. Um, so not everyone is in the kingdom of God in that sense. Some are in and some are out or not yet in. Um, the kingdom of God it also speaks in the, in the Gospels of God's promises and his blessings, um, especially as, as they'll be fully revealed when Jesus, when the king returns. That'll be the, the, the full revealing, visible revealing and fullness of the kingdom. There'll be nothing left then but the kingdom of God um, and his gracious rule over, over everything. And that's, that's what all of history is pushing towards. And so the parables, in, in many of the parables, Jesus is teaching, you know, how is God working toward that end? Um, how is he bringing about his saving rule in people's lives? How is he growing the kingdom uh, in the world? And the parables often point to ways in which the kingdom works in unexpected ways, works contrary to our usual ways of thinking or of, of operating in this world. And, and um, the kingdom of God, in, 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 even as we experience it now, does not preclude um, suffering. It doesn't preclude um, struggle with sin still. Uh, it doesn't mean a life of, of victory and, and just upward trajectory of prosperity uh, in this life. Um, it doesn't mean that we won't wonder at times, where is the kingdom? When, when is Jesus coming? Um, why are these things happening? What is God doing? And so Jesus is preparing the disciples. He's preparing us uh, to assure us that God is at work, especially in, maybe we could say even, um, he's at work in, and maybe we could say especially in, Smallness and weakness and, and unexpected things and disappointing things and timing that doesn't match with our idea of, of timing and, and what we think or want would be best. And certainly can't help but think of our own congregation as, uh, even as a whole uh, in that connection. Recent months we've endured 
significant proportion of injury and illness and uh, life-threatening illness and um, even death and surgery. We think of, of Ken and Ed and Marty and uh, Jonathan and Beth and certainly Evan now and um, maybe I'm even forgetting someone. But Jesus' assurance is that these, these kinds of things are not indications that, that Jesus' kingdom is not working or that it's not effective um, or that our ministry or our growth has been set back, but rather these parables are reminders that these are in fact the very kinds of things uh, through God works to, to bring us more firmly and securely into understanding his grace or into depending on him. Or These are the kinds of things he uses um, through us to use us as, as salt and light as we grow in our dependence on him and, and witness to that. Uh, to others. So let's, let's read these um, parables together and look for that this morning. Beginning in verse 26, this is God's holy word. And he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is, is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. With many such parables, he was speaking the, the word to them as, so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them with, without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. So let's look at both of these parables in, in turn this morning. The, the first, the parable of the seed, as it's often called, I'm, I'm summarizing the, the, the basic application from this as you see in your, your, your outline there to trust God when you cannot see or, or understand how he is working. Uh, trust God when you can't see how he's working. This parable, the parable of seed, is actually unique to Mark. It's not found in any of the other Gospels. It's the only parable that is unique to Mark. Um, Mark doesn't actually give us many of Jesus' parables um, compared with Matthew and Luke. Uh, John gives us none. Uh, Matthew and Luke have most of them. Um, there are about 25 parables that are in Matthew and Luke that are, that, that are not uh, in Mark. And just as an aside, I, I love preaching Jesus' parables, and as we go through Mark in coming months, I, I hope to incorporate maybe seven or eight of, of these other parables from Mark, Matthew and Luke that, that are not in Mark. Uh, from time to time. But I want us to see three, three brief lessons from this first parable, this, this very simple uh, story of the seed here. Um, three brief lessons from verses 26 uh, to 27. The first is simply that, that the seed and the kingdom, by comparison, grows slowly or imperceptibly. So the farmer here plants uh, seed, and, and it's not that the farmer has nothing to do with it. We talked about this last week with the parable of the, the soils, and I couldn't believe Brian wasn't here to hear the parable of the soils. Um, but um, the, the farmer provides the, the soil and, and maybe the light and maybe has something to do, although not nearly as much in the ancient world to do with how much water it gets and so on, but 
at the end of the day, he, he, the, the seed is planted, and then he has nothing else to do with it, with, with the seed actual, actually growing. He doesn't see it. He doesn't have direct influence on how it grows. Yes, as it says here, no idea how it grows. And he, he goes to bed, and he gets up, and he goes to bed, and he gets up, and, and part of the point is he's, he's even sleeping while the, while the seed is growing. Um, it's going through these incredible microscopic processes as it grows. Now, today, of course, we have a much fuller understanding of how uh, plants grow, how plant biology works, um, cell division and, and photosynthesis and all of this. Just last week, Fran told me that she has a uh, bachelor's in bio botany, right? So if you want to know more about that, ask, ask Fran as well. Uh, in the ancient world, all, all of that was a complete mystery, completely hidden, right? And so there was an amazement in that. We might argue, though, that knowing so much more about plant DNA and biology and so on, there's, there's room for even more amazement at, at how this works, apart from our, um, our, our sight of it, um, uh, an amazing process. So part of the emphasis here, again, is that it's invisible. Uh, it, it's growing invisibly underground, but even then when a, when a plant has emerged out of the ground, as we've seen lots of plants do in recent weeks here in the spring, um, it, it still is, is growing invisibly in a sense, right? You can't stare at a plant and see it grow, right? You can't look quick enough and catch it growing, right? Because it's, it's slow. It's, uh, it's, it's imperceptible. It's microscopic. Um, but, it, but they do grow, and, and plants over time, many of them become thousands of times bigger than the seed uh, that, that it originally was. In the comparison with God's kingdom, again, his, his saving power, transforming lives, it's, it's growing across the world, advancing to the return of Jesus. The comparison with God's kingdom to our perception often is that it's, it's growing slowly and, and imperceptibly. We often can't, can't see how it's working, like a seed that's, that's hidden under the ground. Uh, we often can't see or understand how God's kingdom is working. It might seem to be stagnant. It might seem to be going backwards at times. But Jesus assures his disciples, assures you through this parable, it is, it is working. It is growing. You, you can't necessarily see how or where or, or in what way God is working through his kingdom, but it is. It simply doesn't grow the way that we're accustomed to other entities in our world growing. Right? Nations and empires grow as they, they gain political power, or maybe they gain economic dominance or military strength. Uh, corporations grow in similar ways, and as they gain uh, you know, talent and, and um, vast capital, or, or they gain market share and things like this, these are simply not the tools of the kingdom of God. Um, and, and our hopes and our emotions and our faith are misdirected when we look for those things as indications for how the kingdom of God is working or growing. You know, when, when our focus is on numbers of people or uh, cultural influence or amounts of money or political power, um, certainly God can use all of those things. Um, but he's not... Beholden to them. You know, the church is distracted, for example, uh, when it identifies with a, a particular political party or puts its hope in the victory or influence of that party as if it were parallel to the growth of the kingdom of God. 
Right? God's kingdom advances by his word, changing hearts. Uh, that's the first lesson. Secondly, uh, is that God, the, the kingdom or the seed here grows largely apart from human effort. Uh, we, we've already mentioned this. Uh, really, it's closely related. But look, look at verse 28 again. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. Uh, it grows largely apart from human effort. Now the comparison is not to say that God doesn't call you to faithfulness, to meaningful service, uh, doesn't doesn't call you uh, doesn't doesn't use you uh, in His kingdom. But what it does mean is that the, the determining factor in the in the kingdom of God advancing and growing um, is the power and the will of King Jesus. Right? It's not you. It's not me. We we can say definitively, even though God God chooses graciously uses us in meaningful ways, we can say definitively, Jesus does not need you. He does not need your service. Right? He's not beholden to your agenda, uh, to your plans, uh, to your timing. Um, the Pharisees, for example, uh, really believed that they could help usher in the final kingdom of God if they were just holy enough, if they would uh, obey the laws in, in just the right ways and act in just the right way. Um, we are called to be holy. But that doesn't force the kingdom of God in. Uh, the zealots in Jesus' time, uh, they had a different idea. They thought they could force the, the, the earthly, visible kingdom of God in by revolution. Right? But the advance, the growth of the kingdom of God, the success of the gospel depends on the, on the power and the blessing of God alone. Right? And that, that shouldn't, again, that, that shouldn't push us away or discourage us from taking part, from serving eagerly in the kingdom. God is pleased to use his people. He doesn't, he doesn't do that apart from us uh, by his grace. It, it should encourage us all the more uh, to answer the privilege of joining in a certain progress of the kingdom because it's by his power, because it doesn't depend on us. And thirdly, let us see. Uh, the seed we see, the plant here, is, is harvested with perfect timing. Verse 29, But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. At some point, a, a plant, a crop, is, is ready to pick or to cut it down. Right? And there's often a need for a good, a quick judgment on the, on the part of the farmer uh, as, as to when that is, um, when it needs to be harvested, so that it doesn't uh, go bad. Right? Or it doesn't get eaten by pests. Or uh, even today, you've got to get out there before a big rain makes it too muddy or before a hailstorm you know, knocks down your whole wheat crop or, or something like that. And so it's described, the farm is described as immediately putting in the sickle when it's ready. And, and what's the comparison to the kingdom of God? Well, at the, end of the his, at the end of history, the return of Jesus in judgment is often uh, portrayed as, as a harvest. And when Jesus comes to, to give his people full and final salvation and peace and renew the earth and judge and, and vanquish all evil, uh, Jesus won't come a moment too late. He, he will come immediately uh, when it's time. He, he won't delay a nanosecond longer than is necessary in his perfect plan. Uh, we, we might wrestle with the, the question that, that Peter uh, brings up and answers in, in 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, when essentially 
those he's writing to are asking, where is Jesus coming? Where is this coming that he promised? How much longer will he let us struggle with, with disease and brokenness and persecution and death? Where is he? And Peter answers that uh, definitively, saying it, it, Jesus not being not returning it is not because he's unfaithful. It's not because he's he's delayed. He's been held up. Uh, it's mainly because he's merciful. Peter says. He's allowing more and more people to come to repentance, to come to the kingdom of God. He's not gathered his whole church yet. He's, he's making his church holy as we wrestle with the consequences of sin, as we learn more and more to trust him more fully, to, to look more eagerly for his return. And, and when the time that he's planned has come, he will return, not a, not a second later than is good and right uh, in his plan. Now one way the Bible pictures that timing is, is as soon as all of his sheep are gathered, right? as soon as all of the elect, as soon as his church uh, is, is saved, he will return. I had a, a seminary professor who would challenge us to think if, if we really had the kind of eager expectation for that, the, the whole church to be gathered and for Jesus to return that the New Testament urges on us uh, to have, that Jesus is at the door, his, his coming is near, we should be hoping and watching for that. Uh, would you not think that maybe the person that you're witnessing to, that you're praying for, that you maybe should witness to, maybe that's the last one. Uh, maybe God would use you to bring in the, the, the final person of, of his church. Um, before he returns. Again, the encouragement here is that when you see, when you can't see the gracious, sovereign power of God at work or understand how it is, know that he is at work. That it doesn't, doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on me. And it will come to completion at exactly the right moment uh, without delay. Well, the second parable here makes a, a, a similar, a related point. I see... Secondly, in your outline, summarizing the application, the lesson here is to, to trust God in weakness or, or smallness. Uh, look at verse 30 again. How should we picture the kingdom of God? Uh, verse 31, it is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are on the soil. We'll pause there for a moment. The, the first and the main point of this parable is, is the small beginnings of the seed. The small beginnings of the kingdom. And then the great contrast with, with what it becomes, ultimately. Uh, so it's a mustard seed that Jesus uses. It's not literally the smallest seed uh, in the world. It's a proverbially small thing. Yeah, we have proverbially large things and proverbially small things in our, in our language and usage as well. We might you know, call it... Uh, a small child would say they're just a little peanut or something, not because a peanut's the smallest thing we can think of, right? Or we have, um, uh, we have idioms that um, in involve a flea, for example, as a very tiny, small, weak thing. Again, not the smallest, but proverbially small. So the point here is that, that the seed is, is really small. It's really insignificant. Uh, a mustard seed or all kinds of other seeds, you, you would miss them. On the road or on the path, you just step on it. It's so small and insignificant and almost in, uh, invisible. What, what, what's the significant point there? Well, well, Jesus has been proclaiming the long-awaited kingdom of God. He's saying it's here. 
It's, it's at the door. The, the king of the kingdom is here. But, but think of the, the Old Testament expectations for that kingdom. And the promises. Psalm 22 says, All the ends of the earth will, retur- will turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship before God. Or Psalm 72, we'll, we'll sing here in a few minutes. Uh, praise for the Messiah that he would have dominion from sea to sea, from river to the ends of the earth. Uh, or Daniel chapter 7 speaks of uh, the Messiah being given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all people, nations, and languages serving him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom, one that will not be destroyed. And this, this is the vision of the kingdom of God. And the, the, the Jews generally had the expectation that the Messiah would relatively quickly set up an, an earthly kingdom like that, a glorious kingdom that would dominate the world. And everything would be wonderful and peaceful and prosperous for Israel again. Jesus is explaining through these parables and through his life, that's not the way it's going to work. Not that that doesn't describe the reality of the kingdom's one day, but this is not how it begins or works. And so he uses this image of a seed, just this this tiny little fleck of dead matter um, that could be mistaken for a grain of sand or a piece of dirt. One commentator says a more banal comparison could not be imagined, comparing the kingdom of God to a little tiny seed. I mean, Jesus doesn't use the, the glory of, of mountains or um, the glory and wealth of kings or something like that to say this is what the kingdom of, of heaven is like. It's like a seed. Because despite the promises and expectations for the kingdom of God, what... What have the disciples seen so far? Jesus was born in, in obscurity and poverty with no fanfare. He's from Nazareth. We know what the uh, people in the New Testament think of Nazareth. He's continuing now in poverty. He, he's doing nothing to gather power or, or to establish himself as king. In fact, he's commanding people and demons not to tell people who he is. And, and shortly he's going to be executed as a criminal and, and the few friends he has are going to abandon him. And this is the seed of the kingdom of God. And so the disciples need this reminder. We need this reminder. Even, even now, even though we know much more after the resurrection, after the Holy Spirit has come and the, the gospel has spread, we still don't see the kingdom of God often in ways that we might hope or expect. Right? We see the kingdom of God in, in terms of smallness and apparent weakness, still in, in many ways. Uh, God's enemies are still strong and, and not judged. Uh, creation still groans under the curse. Or that there are sins that persist in our lives. Or we know uh, Christians that are, are backslidden or church plants that have failed or churches that have closed or missions that seem unfruitful. Uh, there are Christians that are persecuted. The gospel often falls on, on deaf ears. So, uh, you know, there's growing and powerful evil in the world. We might think in our own context, is the preaching the gospel here every week really, really working? Is it really doing much? What, what of our relatively small church? And why is the satanic temple movement in Boulder growing? Now, these are the kinds of questions and stumbling blocks that, that Jesus compassionately addresses in this, in this parable. 
And so we, we read on looking at the, the second point of this parable, uh, B on your outline, the blessed endings of the kingdom. Verse 32, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and, and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. And this tiny little mustard seed uh, becomes this really large shrub, essentially. It, 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 the comparison, the point is not it becomes the biggest tree in the world, but it becomes the biggest thing in your garden. It, it becomes much bigger than everything else in, in your backyard, in, in a sense. It would be uh, 10 feet tall or, or more, a mustard tree shrub uh, kind of thing. Um, if Jesus had meant to emphasize the the, the bigness of the kingdom. You might have spoken of a cedar or something like that, but the, the emphasis in this parable really is on the seed, uh, the, the smallness of the beginning. And if you didn't know what a seed was or how it worked, you could never guess that this thing that's indistinguishable from a little grain of sand would become a huge mustard tree. Right? Um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people a few weeks ago bet on the, the Kentucky Derby and yesterday on the Preakness, uh, which horse would be the most successful in the end, right? Which would be the fastest or the strongest or the most well-bred or the best trained or the best you know, jockey combination, or if you knew which one was using performance-enhancing drugs, you might bet on that one, especially too. But these kinds of evaluations that generally work in the world to predict outcomes can't be applied to the way that God's work, God works. And again, in verse 32, Jesus used the imagery of, of the birds of the air coming and nesting in its shade. This is the, the end result of the kingdom. Uh, points to, in the end, it, it's a, a thing of security and blessing to people from, from all over the world. Um, this is an imagery that Jesus just made up on the spot here. This is from, from the Old Testament, this image of birds coming um, and nesting in its shade. It, if you want to turn with me to Daniel chapter 4, uh, is one instance of this. Uh, Daniel chapter 4. Uh, this is uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's um, own powerful kingdom is pictured here as, as a tree. Uh, so beginning in verse 11, the tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven. It was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful. Its fruit was abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. And the birds of the heavens lived in its branches. There's that, that imagery of the birds coming and living in this tree. Uh, and all flesh was fed from it. So Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was described as a tree that was uh, uh, security and blessing to people from all over the, the known world, at least. There are all kinds of trees, in a sense, right, that people find security and blessing in for a time. Uh, listen to what happens to, to Nebuchadnezzar's tree. Verse 14, the angel says, Chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit, let the beasts flee from under it, and the birds from its branches. So Nebuchadnezzar's tree was not a tree of, of security for the birds and the beasts for long. And God says, it's not going to last. I'm, I'm not in that tree. Now, Ezekiel 17. You want to turn to Ezekiel 17. is another example of this, this language being used. 
And uh, the beginning of Ezekiel 17, if you haven't read it for a while, is this allegory of um, Israel as a cedar tree. And then this eagle comes, eagle comes to the cedar tree and, and plucks off the top little twig off the tree. And this is symbolic, Ezekiel tells us, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar taking Israel's king, the, t- taking the king out of Jerusalem. And then the whole tree is destroyed. Right? The whole tree is um, is ruined. But then we read this, uh, verse 22. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take that sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. Tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it. So here's the imagery that Jesus is using of, a, of his kingdom being as, as this tree that will bless people from the whole earth. One day, this this vision of the kingdom of God, and note that <clears throat> the vision in Ezekiel 17 there is not of of a huge impressive tree that had always been there, of a, of a kingdom that was always there. But God takes tiny twigs, and dry and dead little branches, and uses those, revives those, and builds those into a kingdom that are a blessing to the whole world. Uh, that's that's his. His pleasure to do it that way. Um, I, I went to a, a nursery this week to, to find some to plant some flowers to plant at our house, and, and you know you look for the the greenest, bushiest, healthiest looking ones, right, to, to take back home. This this illustration in Jesus' parables are saying, in a sense, God does the opposite. Right? God finds God God begins with with little dead branches. Right, the dried out ones that he makes green and causes them to flourish. Uh, the small and weak ones. God, God doesn't. This is just the way that God works. He doesn't. Um, he doesn't call Egypt, but he calls a small slave nation out of Egypt to be his people. Right. He uses a selfish fool like Samson. As we're studying in our class. He, Jesus builds the church on the ministry of, of fishermen and tax collectors. On, Saul, Paul, the, the persecutor of the church. He, he strengthens his church as, as it shares in his sufferings. He uses uh, persecution and poverty and lack of resources to show how powerful his word is. And God works in, in ordinary and common people like you, like me, like your circumstances. He works through the small things, through disappointing things. God is working in and through your faithfulness, even without dramatic results. Right, in Zechariah chapter 4, Zechariah 4 is concerning the return from exile. The people who had been carried away from Jerusalem finally come back, some of them. And some of them can remember what Jerusalem used to be like and how awesome the temple was. And even after the temple's now been rebuilt, it's a depressing scene. They essentially say, this temple stinks. We remember what Solomon's temple was like. We remember what the walls used to be like. How amazing the, the city was. And this is the passage where God warns about despising the day of small things. 
and says that it would be not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. God, God often allows disappointments, small things, weakness, to remind us that this is his kingdom, this is his work. You know, the, the, in one, you know God, God blesses with resources and strength and, and all these things in many ways, many times, but there's certainly a sense in which the more money, the more worldly security, the more impressive are our buildings or our ministries, and again, none of these things are, are, are bad in and of themselves, but the more we have of those things, the more in danger we are of supposing that it's by our power. Right? By, by our shrewdness, by our talents, by our awesomeness, that things are going well or, or seem to be progressing or growing. And so I want to encourage you this morning to have this kind of vision of the kingdom of God. To understand how it works invisibly at times, how it works unexpectedly. But also to have a vision of, of what it will be one day. Of what, what you and, and, and we are working toward. Uh, despite what we see at times. Uh, that the return of Jesus and the new heavens and the new earth are to be a constant encouragement and motivation for us um, and hope for us. The Bible, that's a, it's a significant part of the Bible's the, the faith that it presents to us. You know, read the prophets. Read the prophets to gain this, this vision of what the kingdom of God will be. One of the most pernicious, damaging effects of American theology is downplaying and dismissing the Old Testament, especially the, the visions of the kingdom of God there. Habakkuk 2 and Isaiah 11, uh, the, the view is that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Are, are we thinking about and hoping for that, that to come about? Isaiah 11 there's all kinds of imagery that the nursing child will play over the whole of the cobra. Or Psalm 72, we'll sing in a moment. The whole earth is filled with, with the glory of Christ in, in that description. Or back to Isaiah, the, the, Isaiah 60, the Lord will be your everlasting light. Your days of mourning will be ended. Uh, Isaiah 65, the, the promise to create a new heavens and a new earth. Isaiah 66, God says he'll extend peace like a river to his people. Uh, this is the tree that the kingdom of God will become and is becoming, uh, despite what we see. So be, be encouraged. Trust in King Jesus. Uh, trust Him personally, individually, uh, in your lives. The kingdom of God is at work in you. It's changing you, uh, redeeming your life, saving you. If you're discouraged in your walk with Christ lately, lately, lately maybe your, your faith is weak or your prayer life is... is not there, you're struggling with sin, remember these promises, these visions of the power and the fullness of God's kingdom. Uh, Paul gives God's promise in Philippians 1 is this, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. When you're tempted to be discouraged by what you see globally or corporately, Look at all the ways in which God has worked powerfully through his word in, in history. How many small seeds or dead little branches God has made to, to flourish in various ways. Uh, how God has faithfully provided reformation and revival when, it, when his church has become weak or, or backwards or misguided. How many other kingdoms and institutions have come and gone 
Everyone does. Don't despise the day of small things. Grow in your trust of what God is doing, what his kingdom is, what it will be. I think think of what began um, unnoticed, insignificant, without any money, in, in college dropout Bill Gates' garage in, in the early 1980s. Right? What became one of the wealthiest, most powerful corporations in the world. Or, or in the 90s, a small online bookstore book uh, was started called Cadabra. And while it was still pretty small, a, a lawyer called the owner of Cadabra one day and said, you know, over the phone, Cadabra sounds a lot like Cadaver. And so the, the owner, Jeff Bezos, renamed it to Amazon. And now he's one of the wealthiest men in the history of the world, one of the most powerful, richest companies in the world. And you know, if, if you had known, if you had had some kind of infallible vision of what those two companies, for example, had become, would become, you would have invested everything you had in them, right? Uh, a $5,000 investment in Amazon's IPO in 1997 would be worth over $3 million today. Uh, a a $5,000 investment in Microsoft's IPO in, in 1986 would be worth $10.5 million today. Well, these, these companies, impressive as they are, will not last. Right? They will not last. Only the kingdom of God will last. Um, nothing compares. Nothing compares. No investment in the biggest multinational corporation you can imagine compares with the blessings and the riches of the kingdom of God. Peace forever, perfect creation without suffering, ultimately perfect communion with God forever. Uh, uh, the enjoyment of, of a perfect um, uh, redeemed creation and prosperity forever. So know that, that what you do now in investing in the kingdom of God, um, in the context of the kingdom of God, in, in, for the glory of God, lasts forever. It's a lasting investment. There's nothing that we do as God's people or experience that, that doesn't have lasting uh, consequence or importance. Um, R.C. Sproul is fond of saying in his column and table talk for decades was, was titled, uh, Right Now Counts Forever. So a great reminder of that. Every decision you make, every, every pain that you endure, every mistake you make, every sacrifice you make has significance forever in the kingdom of God. So invest in the kingdom of God. Uh, invest your hope and your joy and your time and your effort there. That doesn't mean um, spend all day every day at church. Right? We're not compartmentalizing things like that, but I think for many reasons it does mean investing significantly in the local church and the local body of, body of Christ. But it applies to all of life. The kingdom of God encompasses all of life. The way that you see your work or understand your life at home or even the way that you think about sleep or leisure, all within the context of and for the, the glory of the kingdom of God. One commentator comments on these, these two parables. That both, both are stories of surprise, that one could never imagine the conclusion from the beginning. That, that's part of the point, but that's what Jesus is inviting us to do in these parables, to imagine the end from, from the beginning, to see the end clearly from the beginning. Um, I just want to close with a, a quote from uh, German theologian Helmut Thelicke. If, if you speak German, you could probably correct my pronunciation of his name, but he was a theologian during the, the 
uh, rule of the Nazis. Um, he faced Gestapo interrogations and bans on preaching in Germany and, and so on. But reflecting, he writes this. One day, perhaps, when we look back from God's throne on the last day, we shall say with amazement and surprise, if I had ever dreamed when I stood at the graves of my loved ones and everything seemed to be ended, if I had ever dreamed when I saw the specter of atomic war creeping upon us, if I had ever dreamed when I faced the meaningless fate of an endless imprisonment or a malignant disease, if I had ever dreamed that God was only carrying out his design and plan through all these woes, that in the midst of my cares and troubles and despair, his harvest was ripening, and that everything was pressing on toward that last kingly day. If I had known this, I would have been all the more calm and confident. Yes, then I would have been more cheerful, far more tranquil and composed. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for your word and the vision of your, your kingdom. And Lord Jesus, helping us to uh, understand what it is and how it works through these parables. We pray that you would help us not to despise the day of small things, or of weakness, or of discouragement, but to know and trust that you are at work uh, even in these things. And we can say from your word, even especially in these things, Give us that trust. Give us a, a vision of what your kingdom uh, will be one day, that, that we would work and be praying towards that day when uh, your word covers the earth like, like the uh, waters cover the sea. We pray all this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.